Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 15, if you will, this morning. Great singing, good enthusiasm this morning, and uh, what a great challenge from our video and our time of prayer this morning um, and there in an offering time. This morning, we're speaking about lostness. That's probably on the front end, doesn't sound like a very encouraging message or a very encouraging topic, but it is. Those of us who have come into relationship with Jesus Christ, we understand full well what it means to be lost. And at the same time, what it means to be found. And we're going to look at this very uh, pass or, or popular passage of Scripture, chapter in Luke chapter 15 this morning. And uh, Jesus' parables here about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. You know, C.S. Lewis, the great writer of the uh, Narnia series, once said, Joy is the serious business of heaven. And so if you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you also know something about joy. And so he says it's the serious business of heaven. And aren't we grateful to be able to have joy uh, in Jesus Christ and know the joy that awaits all of us in heaven one day when we get to set foot there? But think about that. We don't want to wait just for joy in heaven. We want to have joy here. We want to see joy here on this earth in this life. You see, I believe when, when a person gathers with us and among us as a church, and they come into our building, and they come into our place, or they're in our fellowship, whether it be inside these, these walls of this church building or any other time that we're gathering in this community. When somebody is among us, that person should experience a love that produces joy, a love from the congregation that brings about joy. Not happiness, but joy. And joy comes from knowing the Lord. Such was the case for a young boy Many, many years ago, back in the 1800s, he used to walk several miles weekly to attend the Sunday school that uh, D.L. Moody was directing at that time. People began to watch and notice how far he was walking, and so one day a guy just simply asked him, hey man, why are you walking so far to go to this Sunday school when you could surely find something much closer to your house? Your house? And the young boy just simply said, because they love a fella over there. You see, this boy came to understand that when he went to the Sunday school there where D.L. Moody was directing, those people loved him just as he was. You know, whatever he looked like, whatever, however he was dressed, whatever he might have said, they didn't care about any of that. They loved him for who he was, and that brought about joy in his life. I believe this boy's experience was similar to that of the tax collectors and sinners that we read about in the Gospels specifically the gospel of Luke that we've been walking through for many months now. Those tax collectors and sinners, when they were encountering Jesus, he loved them. He, he, he spent time with them. You see, the Lord loved them, and they knew it. He sought them out. He spent time hearing their stories. He spent time sharing meals with them. You know, one of the most amazing things about Jesus' love for sinners is how he conveyed it, how he expressed that to them. He never relaxed his standard of holiness. He never backed down from who he was and what he required of people. He never lowered the bar. He kept the bar as high as it's ever been. Holiness. But he loved them and they knew it. That's so much different than what we have today in this age of tolerance that we live in. You see, we have the tendency to never want to be guilty or accused of offending people. I came across a statement this week 
that was made by Shane Pruitt. He serves as the National Next Gen Director of our North American Mission Board here in the Southern Baptist Convention. I loved what he said. He, he made this interesting observation. He said, and I quote, Jesus did not spend time and eat with sinners because he wanted to appear tolerant and affirming. He spent time with them to show them he is God and how to live differently. Isn't that so much different than what we see today in, in our culture? He goes on to say the gospel is not about affirmation. It's about transformation. That's what Jesus is doing as we walk through the gospel of Luke. We are seeing him not just affirm people. He's always affirming them. He's always affirming them with his love and his acceptance. But his standard of holiness never lessens. And, and so in that is, is the message of transformation. I'm holy. I'm calling you to myself so that you can now be holy yourself. This morning as we move into this next chapter in this gospel, Jesus is going to offer us three parables. Hopefully we know these parables. I trust that most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with these parables. But what he's going to offer in these three parables is an answer to the criticism coming from the Pharisees and the scribes. These religious leaders were again offended by Jesus and how he had a, had a knack for hanging out with people he shouldn't have hung out with. He, he was the guy that was hanging out with tax collectors. He was the guy who was hanging out with quote unquote sinners, which really just speaks of people who are immoral, grossly immoral people. But that's who Jesus hung out with. It was one thing that Jesus welcomed tax collectors and sinners. Maybe they could understand that, but he had the audacity to actually sit down in their home and share a meal together. And so on these three parables that Jesus is going to share with us, spiritual lostness is going to be on full display. We're going we're gonna to talk about five aspects of that, the five characteristics or five things about lostness, but there's something else I want to make sure you catch. And that is the Father's love for people. His desire, his, his commitment to go after that which is lost. You see, these religious leaders who grumbled over Jesus' actions did not understand that Jesus' mission, as he's going to tell us in chapter 19, verse 10, was to seek and to save that which is lost. They also failed to realize that they, too, were among those lost. But Jesus is going to point that out to them. So if you've got your place there in Luke chapter 15, let's begin reading in verse 1. Luke tells us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance." Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now look at verse 11. 
And he said, there were, was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm not, no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother's come, and your father's killed the fattened calf, because he, was received, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Three powerful parables Jesus offers to us. You know, this great chapter teaches us a lot. One of the things it teaches us is that Jesus welcomes and celebrates sinners welcomes and celebrates their return to him. We see this word joy or rejoice and celebrate over and over again. These Pharisees and scribes couldn't fathom why any well-meaning, respectable Jew would ever eat with a tax collector or ever uh, 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 hang out and, and spend time with a sinner. You see, tax collectors were well despised all throughout the Roman Empire. It wasn't just as we read here in the area of Canaan, in the Israeli culture, but all throughout the Roman Empire, no one spoke well of tax collectors. In fact, Cicero, the great Roman philosopher and statesman, one time insulted an opponent of his by saying that he must have imagined himself as a tax collector since, and I quote, you most thievishly ransacked every man's house, the warehouses, and the ships, entangled men engaged in business with the most unjust decrees, terrified the merchants as they landed, and delayed their embarkation. Cicero had no respect, no love for a tax collector. 
The same was true in Jewish culture. The tax collectors theirs were hated because they were regarded as turncoat Jews who had bought a franchise to suck income through taxes from their fellow brethren. They were loathed in every possible way. The synagogues would not receive the offerings that a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, would want to give. Their testimony was never received in court. See, they were regarded as, as worse than the heathen. So as such, Jewish people believed they and the immorals, the gross sinners of the world, were in desperate need of redemption. I believe we could take it a step further and say, in actuality, a good Jew would have regarded a tax collector and a quote-unquote sinner as beyond the reach of redemption. There's no hope for them. We should not even talk to them. We should not waste the Lord's time to spend any effort to befriend them or to try to reach them. The Bible tells us that ever since that rebellious day way back in Eden, men, women, boys, and girls have worked to cover their shame, have worked to hide themselves from God. You see, like Adam and Eve, they believe they know better than God. They think the road that they are traveling is the right one. The reality of that is this. The road that people travel is a dead end. It is a, a, a lost road. If you've ever traveled today, it's kind of hard to get lost, I guess, unless we second-guess our GPS system in our cars. But if you can remember back in the day when we would be traveling without that and we're trying to follow a map or someone's written out directions, many times we would get lost because we're on a road that we thought was the right road and it takes us to a dead end or it takes us to the middle of nowhere. I remember we were years and years ago when Karen and I were uh, living in Kentucky, we were traveling north up the Pennywire Parkway, and, and we saw on the map, back in the day you could print stuff out on the internet, we printed it out, and it showed us that we could actually cross this river and take a back route to our house where we live. Well, we took that back route, but it led us to the river where there was no ferry and there was no bridge. It was a dead end, and we were lost, if you would. That's where people are. In rebellion, in sin, we think we know the right way, we think we're going the right direction, but it always leads us to a dead end, to a wasteland that's full of destruction. Thankfully, here's where grace steps forward. See, rather than leaving sinners on such a dangerous road, what Jesus offers is a better path. It's full of life, and it's full of goodness, and it brings joy. He's the one who goes after the lost until they are found. He's the one who waits in eager anticipation of the lost one's return. Then, when the lost is found, if you notice here in these three parables, when the lost is found, he throws a grand party and celebrates because the one who is lost has been found. The one who was dead now is alive. I want you to see five things this morning about lostness from this chapter. First thing I want you to see is this. I want you to see the depravity of sin. The depravity of sin is on full display here, especially in the parable of the lost son, this third parable. We many times will refer to this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, though the love of the father is probably on a greater display than the prodigal son is because it's the father who receives graciously and welcomes the prodigal son. Unlike the shepherd in this parable, and the woman in the second parable, the father does not go out to seek the son, but it's the memory of the father's goodness that brings the son back to and into the embrace of 
the father, brings him to a place of repentance and forgiveness. You see, the son here in verses 13 through 16 asked his father for his inheritance. Can you imagine that being a, a, a dad with a teenage son or a dad with, or a mom with a teenage daughter, maybe in their 20s even, and they come to you and they say, Mom, Dad, I want what's mine. I want what's rightfully mine. As Jesus tells the parable, the father doesn't argue with that, and he says, here, here it is, go. And he takes it, and he squanders it in reckless living. This young man didn't want to wait till after his father's death to get what he thought was his. He wanted it now, and this father graciously agrees to give his inheritance to both of his sons. And then he, the younger son leaves and wastes all of it in reckless living. Jesus tells the parable now without any money because he's wasted it all on lascivious living. The young man's situation worsens. A famine breaks out in that area. Food and work become scarce. And the only work he can find to try to bring some resources into his situation is a pig farmer. And so he hires himself out to a pig farm feeding pigs. I'm from Arkansas where we, we, uh, we, we celebrate the Razorback. So I know a little bit about hogs. This guy is what we would call slopping the hog. There's nothing um, uh, wonderful about that phrase, slopping the hogs. If you've ever, as, as a kid, or maybe you have hogs today, if you've ever fed hogs like I have when I was a kid, you walk out there with what you would never put in your mouth, and you throw it, you slop it down into the trough, and those pigs come like that is bon appetit type of meal, like Thanksgiving dinner for them. We look at it and think, I would never put that in my mouth. And they're, think, they're, they're singing the hallelujah chorus like I ribeye last Sunday. You know, it's amazing to me. I heard so many comments. This is off the record. I heard so many comments after the sermon last week, after the service was over, standing back there, about the illustration of the steak. Is that the only thing you heard last week? <laughs> I, I kind of like thought about dialing the illustrations down a little bit so you'll catch the, the, the points more than the, the food. But you're like me. You love you love food. So this Jewish young man is slopping the hogs. It's not a kosher place to be. On top of that, apparently he was not being paid enough to feed himself because Jesus tells us in the parable that he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs were eating. He wanted to slop alongside the hogs. That's how hungry he was. That's the dire situation that he was in. You see, this young man was lost. The depravity or the corruption of sin in his life had taken him to places he had never imagined. When he asked his dad to give him the inheritance, he never thought it would be a direction that would lead him to a, a pig pen. He never thought that the steps he was going to take, the, the direction he was going to walk, the activities he was going to engage in would take him to that place. But that's what sin does. You see, depravity, the depravity of sin, will always take us to places we never imagined. It always takes us to death, hell, and the grave. It's been said that sin will take you further than you want to go and keep you there longer than you're willing to stay. It'll take you to places you never imagined, and it will keep you there longer than you ever wanted to stay. A lot of times, we want to just tiptoe around sin, and we think that if we could just tip... Or, put our tip of our foot in it and kind of dance around the, the fence, that's enough. But what happens is it draws us in and in and in, and ultimately it will destroy your life. That's where this man was. 
depravity of sin had taken him, as Jesus says, to a far country. He's not where he was supposed to be. But that doesn't mean that for us to fall into the depravity of sin, that it's going to take us physically to a faraway country. You see, you can be in a far country and never leave. We're going to get to that with the older brother in just a little bit. But he's not where he's supposed to be. Physically, he's not where he's supposed to be. Uh, Relationally, he's not where he's supposed to be spiritually. And that's the point of this text. This son was lost because of his willful rebellion against his father. He decided to leave for what he believed to be better. This delusion is what sin always offers to us. Think about the promises that sin makes. Sin promises freedom, but what does it deliver? Slavery. Sin promises success, but what does it bring? Failure. Sin promises life. But it can only produce death. This young man thought by chasing the dream, he would find himself. But instead, all he found was himself lost. The depravity of sin is a downward spiral of lostness. There's a second thing I want you to see about lostness, and that is the grace of consequences. In verses 17 through 19, we we see this grace uh, uh, taking place in his life in response to his consequences. You see, the consequences of this man's sinful choices were abysmal. What are the consequences of his choice? Well, he has no more inheritance. His relationship with his father, from his perspective, is destroyed. His relationship with his brother, non-existent. He doesn't have anything to show for all of the things that he spent his money on. I got to believe that he took that money and he was partying and having a great time with people. But where are those people now that he has no money? They're not with him either. And so here's a Jewish young man who has no money in a land that's far away from home. And now there's a famine that's broken out. And the only work he can find to try to create some sustenance in his life is at a pig farmer's place. And they're not even paying him enough to feed himself. That's the consequences in his life. So he literally found himself wallowing in a pig pen. So it's at this lowest of lows that verse 17 tells us he came to himself. That means his eyes were open to the reality of his dire situation. Here's what's going on in some of your lives this morning. You're walking at a guilty distance, whether you're in relationship with Jesus or not in relationship with Jesus, but you're not where you need to be. You're walking in that faraway country, and the consequences of sin and the choices that you made are building. They're growing, right? But you can't see it. Why can't you see it? First of all, I don't believe the Lord's opened your eyes to see it. Perhaps this morning by us walking through this passage, the Holy Spirit will illuminate the Word of God and you will begin to be able to see that where I'm at is not where I need to be. I'm in a far country. I'm at a guilty distance. And this man is in this situation. These consequences have brought these these the situation into his life, and in this moment, he comes to himself. He recognizes his sinful choices and the consequences that they have brought into his life. Theologically, we understand this. Paul tells us in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. See, the Bible tells us that our sin and the depravity it brings in our life kills us both spiritually and physically. We understand this. That's what sin does. That is the consequence of sin. Spiritually, sin cuts us off from God 
who is our creator and who wants to be our redeemer. Physically, sin brings deadly things into our lives. Now, hear me this morning. Just because you are walking in rebellion against the Lord doesn't mean it's going to take you to a place that you will physically die from those decisions. It very well could. But it doesn't mean that. In fact, you may actually live a life that looks really good on the outside, and people think, man, you're the most wonderful person in the world. But what's going to happen in your life? Eventually, you will die. And that is the consequence of sin. And when you die in your sin, you are also spiritually cut off from the Lord, and that's not a good eternal place to be with God. Those are the consequences of sin. It brings death. The payment for sin is death. But thankfully, there, there's more to what that great verse tells us in Romans. It goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, while it's true that sin does bring death, it is equally true that God desires to give life to the dead. So God graciously uses the consequences of our sin to bring us to himself. He will allow and even cause sinners to smack their noses up against the reality of their choices, the reality of their decisions, so that they might see the consequences and be drawn to repent, turn from, and seek forgiveness. Turn from those decisions, from that sin, and turn to a Savior who longing, longingly waits to embrace. And that's what this young man does. He repented. Now, his change of mind was not driven entirely by his miserable state, but as we read the text here, his unrelenting memories of home. See, he had memories of how good it was in his father's home. He could remember the servants that he used to manage as the son. And he remembered that while I'm in this far country and everything is as worse as it could be, as bad as it could be, Back home, my servants are living like kings compared to me. And if I could just go home, not to be a son, not to be a, an inheritor of the kingdom of my father, but if I could just be a servant, if I could just wait a table, if I could just come alongside and serve and support my father, then, man, my life would be so much better. You see, today, people will sit in church and they will sit in their Christianity and they will live in sin. But in the grace of God, God will take the consequences of their choices and He will take the memories of the gospel that they've learned and He will graciously use those two things to bring them to a place of repentance and faith. That's what this young man is experiencing. I was having lunch Friday with one of our men and we were talking through just some scenarios of what's going on in people's lives and he's a small group leader and just kind of talking through stuff and how we can you know trying to help him how to minister to various situations and so we got on this conversation of uh, where choices will take us and I made the statement that there are times most of the time what we need to do for us to ever get right with God and get right with others is many times we have to go to the very bottom before we ever realize man I'm broken man I'm undone it would be so nice if we could see our situation and say, I don't want to live that way. But many times we won't see it or, or understand the need for repentance until everything is taken out of our life. But even in that moment, that is the grace and the goodness of God that would lead us to repentance. So that's what we see here. God 
allows this man to live out his choices to such an extent that it ruins him, and then God steps in. This brings us to the love of the Savior. The third thing I want you to see, verses 20 through 24. So while this young man is in the far country, the, the father, as Jesus tells the parable, is longingly waiting for the son to return. We're led to believe that this father, I just picture it this way, every single night after dinner, before the sun sets, maybe he goes out on the front porch of the tent that they lived in. Let's put it back in their setting, front porch for us. But he goes out in the front yard, and he looks as far as he can see, all the way around, and he's just scanning the horizon. He knows which road or what city that road takes him. He knows which city that road takes him. He doesn't know where his son is at this moment, but he expects him, wants him, longs for him to return. That's the love of the Savior. That's the love that we see in this text, as this father is waiting and longing for his son's return. And then one day, his deepest longing is satisfied as he recognized that distant figure coming down the road. He recognized that it was his lost son, his prodigal son. And so he jumps up out of his seat. He throws the glass of iced tea down. He pulls up his robe, which is undignified in that culture, and he runs across the field to his son. The love of the Savior, pursuing, welcoming, embracing the lost son. Out of compassion, out of love for this young man, he hugs him and kisses him. Even before there's a confession of the wrongs done by the son, the father is embracing him. You see, the love of the Savior lo longs to welcome sinners home. While the sinner is happy to simply be a servant, God is never satisfied with us being a servant. Here's one thing you need to think about that. Let me just put it in um, context, I guess. I'll hear this many times. In a, in a death situation, even from Christians that sh supposedly know their Bible, they'll say something like this, well, God just needed another angel in heaven. Please don't demote yourself or your loved one. Angels are servants of God. Now, we are as well, but we're different creations. Angels are servants of God that do the bidding of God, and they're the mediator many times between heaven, God, and us. They're not sons of God. Humanity are sons of God. You see that? You see, if God just needs a servant, he'll have another angel. But if God wants a son, and that's what he wants and pursues in salvation, he brings us up to that. That's what the father in this parable is doing. He doesn't welcome and say, yeah, you're, you're a slimy dude. I'm still a little ticked off that you've wasted everything I've worked so hard, of, hard for over these years. But I'm glad you're back. I, I love you. Maybe we can work this thing out. That's not what he says at all. He says, Bring a robe, bring a ring, put sandals on his feet, clean those feet, kill the fattened calf. Tonight we're parting. Why? Because this son of mine who was lost is now found. This son of mine that was dead is alive. And that's what Jesus does for us. The love of the Savior embraces us, not as a servant to wait tables, but as a son and as a daughter of the king to sit at the table and to feast with him. That ought to get you excited about Jesus today. That ought to get you excited about what God wants to do in your life. He bestows sonship on the sinner. Church, do you see the love of the Savior? 
You see how much he loves you? Do you see how much he pursues you? Do you see how much he wants to give you and do for you? Do you see how lovingly he wants to spend all of eternity with you and us? A sinner walking at a distance from God, someone who's far from God today, can you also see the love of the Savior? Can you see how he longs and wants and desires to be in relationship with you? So much so that when you come in repentance, and that young man is repenting, he's not willing for you to just be a servant waiting tables. He wants you sitting beside him. That's how much God loves you today. The love of the Savior is on display in the midst of this lostness. But not everyone can see it. Maybe this morning you can't see it either. This brings us to the fourth thing I want you to see, and that is the danger of self-righteousness. Verses 25 through 32, we see the older brother step onto the stage. This older brother, older brother who hadn't squandered his inheritance, he had never left his father's side, he returns from the field, he hears the commotion, he asks a servant about it, he's told that the younger brother, his brother, has returned. Rather than getting excited about that, rather than being happy and joyful about this, rather than celebrating the return of the lost son, he gets angry and resentful. His reaction is a very interesting twist to this story. You see, the younger son's repentance exposes the hardness of this brother's self-righteous heart. His reaction tells us that even though the older son had never left the family farm, listen to this, his heart had left the father. He had left the father. I told you earlier, you don't have to leave and go to a really far geographical place to be far from God. You can be far from God and still be in the religious circle. You can be far from God and go through all uh, of the normal activities of what other believers do. Who's Jesus talking to here, remember? He tells us, Luke does, in Luke 15, verse 2, verse 1, Tax collectors and sinners are drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled because he ate with them. So Jesus is speaking to them. They're the older brother sitting in the circle, living on the family farm. They're doing everything they're supposed to do. They know all the lingo. They keep all the laws. They do all of the work, and all the while, they're far from God. Any far from God people sitting in this congregation this morning? Augustine articulated this reality in his confessions. He said this, and I quote, For it's not by our feet, nor by change of place, that we either turn from thee or to thee. He says, In darkened affections lies the distance from thy face. You see, this older brother's affections were far from God. He had no love for the Father. He had no love for the Father. Think about this. How do we know we love Jesus? By obeying his commandments, by doing what he's told us to do. That's what Jesus says. If you love me, you obey my commandments. Here's a man who just went through the emotions, the, the, the emotions of being a good son, but he never had love for him. It was never motivated by love. He wants to earn his own way. The problem with this older brother was that his heart was completely out of sync with that of his father, and he did not even know it. He didn't possess this love. He didn't possess the compassion of his father. In fact, he was sorry to learn of his brother's return. Even greater than that, he's angry that his brother has returned and a party has been thrown from him, and he says, Father, I've done everything you ever told me to do, which is a lie, by the way. 
Any perfect people in here that obeys the commandments of the Father every single time? That's what self-righteousness will tell you. I'm good. Look at me. Man, I've got a down pat. I keep all of the commandments. So he's lying even unto himself, and then he is re- resentful because in his, in his zeal to earn from the Father, he's never been celebrated. Why hasn't the Father celebrated him? Because the Father only celebrates those whose heart is with him. And the younger son, while he has sowed wild, wild oats for a long time, that son has returned. And the older son who never left, his heart is still far away and has not yet returned. So which one do you celebrate? You celebrate the one who's returned, not the one who's still far away. The danger of self-righteousness. Many people would have praised this older brother. They would have looked at him and said, man, he looks really good on the outside. He's respectful, he's obedient, he's dutiful, he's steady, he's moral. How many of us, when we have multiple kids, like I've got three daughters, and they're all different, by the way. You've always got one that's a little bit more challenging than the other. You've got one that's like, never does anything bad, like the perfect kid. And we have a tendency, if we're not careful as parents, to say, why don't you be more like so-and-so? I got to believe that the people who knew this family would have said, Whatever the younger brother's name is, why can't you be like your brother? And yet the older brother is the one who had the wicked, rebellious, unrepentant heart. So let's be careful, parents. Both the older and the younger need the gospel. Both are lost. Both are far from God. Both need to experience the Savior. Self-righteousness is dangerous and even deadly. In it, we tend to think that self-help is what makes our lives better. Therefore, we would expect others who are broken in sin to pull themselves up, just like we've done, right? If you're self-righteous, that's what you're thinking here. Why can't that person get their life together? Why can't you get your life together? Because your sin keeps you far from God. And I can't ever fix myself, no matter how religious or unreligious, no matter how good or ungood I may be, at the core of my heart, I am dead, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, in trespasses and sins, and I've never seen a dead person bring life to themselves. So they need the Savior. This younger brother repents. Self-righteousness seeks to earn rather than receive acceptance. Never repents of sin. It's prideful. And so the Savior never and will never celebrate or accept it. And yet repentance is what God celebrates. And so let's move into the last point. Let's talk about the joy of repentance. In verse 7, verse 10, verse 32, what's the picture that we see there? Look at those verses. The first parable, Jesus says, of the one who lost his sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, he gets home, and he says, rejoice with me. The sheep that was lost, I found. The woman who's lost the coin, she's lost a tenth of her her wealth, she, she finds it, she's moved everything in the house, she finds it, and she says, rejoice with me. The lost son who's come back, the prodigal, the father says, let's celebrate. He was once lost, he's found, he's dead, he's alive, Right? So Jesus here is telling us that all of heaven rejoices over sinners who repent and who turn to God. There's a great joy, great celebration when even one sinner repents. Why is that? It's because there's great value on every single human being. You're not a number that's just 
a part of a large, grand group of people. Yeah, we are the church universal, and we are the church locally. There's a bunch of us even in here this morning. But God loves you because you're valuable for yourself. Every single person. The Bible tells us he knows the hairs on our head. Some of us, that's really easy for the Lord. But he knows the numbers on our head because you're valuable, because he loves you, because his affection is set on you. So God is willing to leave the 99 to search for the one. He's diligently turning the lights on and moving all of the furniture in the house to find that one lost coin because it's of immense value. Friday morning, I was uh, taking down a ladder. I was moving some tree stands around, getting ready for the season because I'm like two months behind in that area of my life. And so I was uh, taking the ladder down. If the hunter's in the room, you probably know what I'm talking about. It goes up in a stick. It's a bunch of pieces. I'm up at the very top, and I take mine down as individual pieces. And so I unbolted it, and in my head, I might even consciously set it, I said, I don't need to drop this nut, right? So I'm 20-something feet in the air. What do you think happened next? 20-something <laughs> feet down into a bunch of leaves. But I saw it, and I said, no big deal. I know where it's at. I can find it. You know, it's like neat on the haystack, but I know the general vicinity where it landed next to this little holly bush thing. So I get the whole thing taken down. I separate it, get it packed up, and I decide I'm going to go look for that nut. You know what I couldn't find? The nut. So I spent about five minutes or so on my hands and knees, scraping away leaves, trying to find it. But when you're 20-something feet in the air, and then you're on the ground, everything looks different. I was reminded of that. So after about five minutes, I'm like, forget it. I'll go to the store and buy another nut. Aren't you grateful that Jesus never does that with you? He never says, ah, I can start over. Ah, there's more lost people out there. Let's go get them. He never does that. Why? Because he loves you and his affection is set on you. Jesus would have searched for all of eternity until he found that nut. Because he loves you. And then he's going to throw a party. Compassionately waits and watches for the lost son to return and he runs to embrace and receive you see he refuses to be swayed from celebrating the lost being found quite the opposite he throws the biggest party because the sinner who was lost is found the one who is dead is alive so there's joy in heaven and the church when sinners repent but there's also joy the sinner see when we come to faith in jesus christ Everything about us changes. Now, our situation physically may not change. We still may have to deal with the consequences of our past sinful choices. But inside, there's joy. Because now I've been found. I've been brought from death to life. Heaven is awaiting me. I know God. He knows me. All is well. There's joy here. There's joy in this son who is embraced and received and welcomed. And we are that son, those of us who know Jesus Christ. Three words summarize this chapter. Lost, found, and rejoice. These three parables answer the grumbling of these religious leaders who were offended by Jesus' audacity to interact with lost people, with sinful people. But this chapter also makes clear to us that God welcomes and God forgives repentant sinners. Therefore, he receives and welcomes you and I today. I wonder, have you hit your little face against the wall and the reality of your own sin? 
and the consequences that it's brought into your life. And if you've come to that place, have you turned from that sin and turned to Jesus? If you have, then you know the joy we're talking about. You know the embrace of the Father. You know what it means to have that weight, that, that, that burden off of your life. And now you've been filled with joy and peace and goodness. Maybe this morning you are a follower of Jesus, but for whatever reason, you're walking at that guilty distance, which means you're not walking in step with the Lord because you've gotten your eyes off of him. You've got your eyes on your situation. You've got your eyes on something in this world. There's your affection. And because of it, you're kind of walking back when you should be walking in step. And that's where God wants you to be. And that's where joy and peace and goodness and all of the blessings and promises of God, that's where they are. How do you get there? Well, sometimes you've got to hit the wall of your own choices that brings you to that point, but it's always going to bring you to a place of repentance and, once again, faith. And so as we talk about lostness this morning, as we look at these three parables and we think about these three terms, lost, found, rejoice, how do you get to being found and joy? It's faith and it's repentance. Have you done those today? Are you walking in that today? And then as Christians who are walking in that, how do we take that to others? That's like a message for another time. I'm not even dealing with that. But the video that we watched earlier screams that to us, right? We live in a world that's vastly lost. Hey, before we think of the 195 nations out there and we would say, yeah, I can understand they're lost. We live in a vastly, vastly lost county. You say, we're conservative here in Powhatan. Not the true conservatism that we would, should be seeking. We're vastly lost in Palatine. We hold on to conservative principles in a way that were undergirded and taught and propagated from what we see in the teachings of the Bible, but that is devoid and separated from God himself. We need Jesus in our county. That was a terrible amen to that. I don't know if you really believe it. I really don't know that we really believe that. I think we're still buying the bill of goods to say, man, we're good. We're good in Palatine. No, we're vastly lost. And 75% of our count, if not more, are on their way to a devil's hell. That's just a fact. How can we help them? We first have to know Jesus ourselves and walk in step with Jesus. That's what we're talking about this morning. So let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that in these parables we see these three words, these three ideas, lost, found, and joy. And every one of us in this room, everyone who's maybe watching this morning online, we know that these three words have great implications for our life. We know that we've all, in our sin, are lost separated from God for all have sinned and fall short is what the word of God says the wages of sin is death Lord we all know that we're lost we all know that we are both of sons in this text some of us in this room have been found and some of us in this room, because we've been found, we rejoice in the gospel and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And we're grateful for that. Some of us are wrestling with that whole concept right now. What, 
What does that mean to be found? What does that mean? I, I sense this is a need in my life. That, that's the wrestle that's going on. And I just pray that your spirit, Father, would speak and draw and move and convict and woo us to Jesus. Help us to see ourselves in these parables. Someone worthy, not in and of ourselves, but because of the value that you have placed upon us in creation, we are worthy of your love and affection and work. And you're welcome. But because of our sin, we're separated. Lord, help us now to turn from that sin and allow you to draw us and to welcome us once again. God, may we not be like that older brother's Standing in our self-righteousness, standing in our religion, standing in our good works, standing in what we have done and what we think is good and what we think we've earned. But instead, Father, may we have the humility of the younger son who says simply, if I could just be a servant, that's good enough. But God, that heart, that humility, that posture puts us in a place to be sons and daughters of the king. Help us to see that this morning. So we move into a time of response, Father. We want to respond in light of your word, in light of your gospel. Help us to see our lostness, our need, and respond accordingly this morning. This time is yours. We are yours. May your will be done, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.